Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick, editor of the ABA blog and your host here, and I hope that your 2017 year list is off to a great start. Mine definitely is not. I've been out a couple times in my home county picking up the common stuff, but it's been a slow start for sure. The weather certainly has not been helping around here. I am certainly not on pace to have any sort of year like the one that John Weigel just finished. His total of 780 species in the ABA area, plus three provisionals, which are our first records that have yet to be added to the official list, smashed the ABA area big year record set by Neil Hayward in 2013. And if that wasn't enough, three more birders broke that record this year. Olaf Danielson ended the year at 776 plus two. Laura Keene ended the year at 759 plus three. And Christian Hagenlocker at 750 plus two. All exceptional totals in what turned out to be an exceptional year. So congratulations to those birders. I think I can speak for a lot of people in the U.S., Canada, and the world when I say that it was really fun to follow along with all four of you this year. We are going to be speaking to those big year birders in an upcoming episode of this podcast, so stay tuned for that in the coming weeks. I'm really excited about that. I have heard that there is one birder tackling an ABA area big year in 2017. I don't know if it is an attempt to break the record, but with Hawaii in the mix, who knows? Uh, That out of the way, the big news for the first part of the year, at least in the APA, is the announcement of the 2017 Bird of the Year, which is, drumroll please, thank you John, it's Ruddy Turnstone. Arenaria intrepas, the little calico-colored sandpiper, is a favorite across the ABA area. I know I like them a lot. They're colorful. They're charismatic. They draw attention to the sorts of conservation issues that many shorebirds and coastal species are dealing with, particularly uh, climate change on their breeding grounds and sea level rise everywhere else. Plus, they're easy to find along both coasts. In fact, they are not hard to find on coastlines around the world. They are one of the handful of species that can be found on all six inhabited continents, which is pretty interesting and a first for our birds of the year. So I am excited about this choice. I really like this bird. I like their bold colors. I like their familiarity. I like their attitude. Here in North Carolina, I often see them strutting through the legs of fishermen on our coastal piers. And in Delaware, where the ABA is headquartered, uh, they're one of the species of shorebirds that gathers on the bays there to take advantage of the horseshoe crab spawns. So it's definitely a bird that birders have an opportunity to see and see well. Uh, They have a really close relationship with us, which makes them really appealing as a bird of the year and a way to get people into birds and birding. Uh, We also have an amazing 2017 Bird of the Year artist in Sophie Webb. I'll be talking with her about Ruddy Turnstones and her work in the middle segment of this episode. And in the commentary, which we still need a name for, by the way, I share a cool Ruddy Turnstone experience that I had uh, at the last part of last year. Uh, So stick with us. We'll get to that right after the Rare Bird Alert, which is coming up next. This is your Rare Bird Retrospective for the first half of January and the last little bit of December. Easily the most exciting find of this period was a black kite photographed on St. Paul Island in the Pribilofs, Alaska. This represents a first ABA continental record and, incidentally, a first record of the use of the term ABA continental, which is the name we're giving to the region that represents the ABA area prior to including Hawaii. Hawaii actually has three previous records of this species, but black kite has shown a tendency to wander into the New World in the past. There are also records of black kite from a number of islands in the Caribbean, and one unidentified Eurasian kite species from Newfoundland that was not identifiable and would have been either black or red kite. We've had a few firsts in the ABA area since we last checked in, including a Lucy's Warbler in eastern Virginia, 
There's only one other record of the species on the East Coast in Massachusetts and only a couple more from Louisiana in the entire eastern half of the continent, so definitely a significant record there. There were two red-flanked blue tails in the ABA area in the last days of 2016, one in Idaho, where it was the first record for that state, and another in British Columbia, so birders could chase them based on whether they wanted to pass through a border crossing, uh, which is actually sort of convenient. And British Columbia also had an amazing record of purple sandpiper near Victoria. This is the second extralimital purple sandpiper in the last month following one in Colorado, and only the second record for the Pacific Coast. Staying out west, a Eurasian kestrel was present for one day in Humboldt County, California. This was the second record for the state. There are only a few records from the lower 48 of this old world falcon. This was the latest in a string of continental and local rarities for Humboldt County, which includes a continuing common poacher, great gray owl, and tufted duck. Other firsts include kelp gull in Newfoundland at the gulling mecca that is the St. John's Harbor. This is the furthest north record of the southern hemisphere species. And the District of Columbia also had its first record of black-throated gray warbler coming after records of that western species in Maryland and Virginia late last year. That only scratches the surface of notable vagrants in the last couple weeks. For a more complete look at the entire ABA area, be sure to check out the Rare Bird Alert published at the ABA blog at blog aba.org every Friday morning. And for day-to-day updates on all noteworthy birds, head to the ABA's Rare Bird Alert Facebook group. You can find that at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare. This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by Naturalist Journeys, carefully crafting birding and wildlife tours since 1998. For more information, go to www.naturalistjourneys.com. My guest this week is Sophie Webb, artist, scientist, and author. You probably know of her from her work on a number of different bird guides, including the Guide to Mexico and Northern Central America and Birds of Peru, as well as her own series of children's books. She's also our 2017 Bird of the Year artist, and her painting of ready turnstones on a California beach is featured on the cover of the upcoming February issue of Birding Magazine. Thanks for taking the time to uh, join me today, Sophie. Oh, it's my pleasure. Our 2017 Bird of the Year is uh, Ready Turn Stone, and it's really a striking bird, uh, particularly in comparison with other shorebirds. And and I think that your cover art really shows that off to a, to a wonderful effect. Is there a particular experience or experiences that you've had with Ready Turn Stones that inform this painting? Well, in the mid-90s, I worked in Alaska on a shorebird project, and I really loved the Ready Turn Stones. They would breed way out on the edge of the tundra uh, in really, really incredibly barren habitat. And they could, and and obviously they did that so that they could see for a long distance. Uh, I just remember them being incredibly, not aggressive, but very kind of full of themselves. And as soon as they would see a, a Jaeger come within probably, you know, 500 meters or something of their nest site, they would fly off of it and uh, chase them. And were a lot, lot of fun to watch. And so I really remember that. And also, of course, remember how um, fantastic those adult males looked up there. And they're in their, you know, full breeding plumage. And the other thing I, I like about ready turnstones is you kind of can see them just about everywhere. I think of seeing them on both coasts and the painting that I did. I, I think it could, you know, it's because I live in California, it's sort of set in California, but I grew up on the East Coast. So I sort of could, could also be on parts of the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I saw them in the Galapagos when I worked there. 
many, many years ago and uh, seen them in Chile. So part of the uh, painting was to have them kind of in a setting that could, could be maybe a lot of different places. Yeah, absolutely. I live on the East Coast. And so, you know, I see them every time I go to the shore in North Carolina. And they're so, uh, they're, they're, they're very common, but, you know, they're the sort of bird that you always sort of linger on. How do you work? Can you can you walk us through the process that sees you with an idea of this ready turnstone painting and ends with uh, the cover art that you've you've created here? Okay, so most of uh, usually when I start a picture, I actually start well. If I have field sketches of the birds, I will pull out field sketches, and then I uh, will search for as many photos as I can, and then I do. I kind of have an idea of what I want to do. Then I do uh, start off actually working on tracing paper and I do many, many layers of tracing paper, trying to get the bird shapes right, trying to figure out the composition. And then that gets, in this case, because it's in acrylic, I was painting on board. So then I transferred the pretty final drawing onto the board and then I uh, put a ground color on it so it's all usually it's kind of um, I don't know, burnt sienna so it's kind of actually kind of ruddy mm-hmm. color um, which actually worked quite well for this bird and then um, once the once it's transferred then I just slowly really slowly work it up um, I found that for me I really enjoy uh, working in acrylics for longer paintings because I like the whole process of slowly building up the paint. Right. Just sort of a, it just it just suits me a little bit better than working in watercolors at, at the moment. You know, right. it's sort of my art is just sort of shifting a little bit mm-hmm. from what I used to do. So. Oh, I always think it's kind of interesting because so many we've had a lot of different artists do art over the years, and it seems like every one of them has a slightly different way they go about. Uh, creating the painting and so, so it's kind of kind of interesting to to hear what people like to do um, so when you are field sketching are you do you always bring out uh, field sketching materials into the field with you uh, so you can always you know take the opportunity to draw a bird if, if an opportunity comes up yeah usually when I go birding I usually have something around that I can that I can draw in sometimes it's not a full field sketching you know kit per se but I always have some kind of sketch pad that I can take little notes on. So yeah. Yeah. I find it really helpful. Even if the sketch is not something that's very completed, I think it helps a lot. Just kind of my way of taking notes. It's a better right. way for me to take notes than than writing a writing down a description. And I also find, you know, I have a lot of I have many, many books of field sketches and they also it's kind of amazing how the field sketches will prompt a memory of the place I was right. and you know, watching the bird. And I enjoy doing the field sketches. Sometimes I find it frustrating doing them because I can't get, don't feel like I can get the bird right. But I also uh, find that it, it really helps with both memory of place and also memory of that particular bird or species. I've I've been in the in the field with bird artists before, and I've always found it amazing when they kind of pull out even just a little scrap of paper and can you know put something relatively quickly on there that that really grabs the 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 essence of the bird. It's it's almost like magic to someone who you know doesn't have that skill, like myself. Is there a particular group of birds that you enjoy working on or working with? 
I will. I mean, obviously, I, I spent a lot of time at sea, so mm -hmm. I really like seabirds. Obviously, um, I like painting seabirds. I, I really, they all, most of them have these beautiful faces and stuff. They're a little kind of subtle. They often have, often because a lot of them feed. It, also at night, they have a little bit, a little bit of you know, big brown eyes, and uh, uh, sometimes can have this kind of nice soft look look to them, even though it's you know, sweet little storm petrels and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I really like night birds. Kind of. It's one of the groups that I have frequently been asked to paint for neotropical uh, guides, particularly night jars. There's something about trying to figure out the pattern of them and kind of simplify it, but still making it look uh, really cryptic. Yeah. Um, and I, so I really, really enjoy painting those uh, kinds of birds. And I sort of started a little series of acrylic paintings of uh, night birds and then I also, I really like hummingbirds. So I mean, lots of people really like hummingbirds, but I really, really, really like hummingbirds. And in fact, the, actually now longer ago than I, than I think, because time for me has gotten, as I've gotten older, has gotten so much tighter in a way. But anyways, a few, quite a few, a few years ago, I went to Ecuador for a month just to look at hummingbirds. And it was just a great trip. I basically just stayed in a couple places in the Andes. Mm-hmm whole time not not you know crazily trying to travel around i stayed at a bay of vista on one side of the andes and then i went to san isidro on the other side of the andes and all i i'm you know my main focus was just to go and draw hummingbirds you know it was, it was a great it was a really great trip of course i saw lots and lots of other things too and drew right. other other things but but uh, hummingbirds were the the main focus yeah, I imagine the uh, the iridescence and the different ways that manifests itself would be really challenging and, and sort of fun to to take on. Yeah, and I think and I think also, well, I really I like the tropics, so that's part part right. of it as well. And you know, often you can see lots of different species of hummingbirds at, at the feeders. But what I liked to do was uh, watch them at the feeders, and hopefully, at least with a few of them, learn their calls. Mm -hmm. And then when I was out hiking around, birding hopefully be able to pick them up feeding on native flowers and that's always uh -huh. the great thing about hummingbirds you know is that they often are you know around big groups of you know beautiful flowers whether they're teeny tiny flowers or something much larger mm -hmm. so it all that also makes a really nice visual look or statement or whatever who are some of the the your favorite bird artists that you enjoy whose uh, process you enjoy whose whose work that you really appreciate um, well, um, you know, of course, Lars Johnson comes to mind mm -hmm. immediately, who's, you know, a fantastic field artist in particular. My mentor is Guy Tudor. So mm -hmm. sort of for the field guide art, um, I love his stuff. And in fact, right now I'm looking at a couple of chat tyrant paintings that uh, I have of his. Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh, there's so there's so many. There's so <laughs> many people it's hard there, there to, really are you know there's killian malarney has, does, does some beautiful mm -hmm. stuff larry mcqueen i don't know anyways there's mm -hmm. there's there's lots and lots of them i tend to tend to be uh drawn to the people who do a lot of really uh, a lot of work in the field and of course and there's bob clam who is an old uh, bird artist since uh mm -hmm. died he's a contemporary of of Guy Tudor, who uh, lived on Cape Cod and did this exquisite uh, pictures and very concerned about light on birds. So it, it seems like nowadays that there are far fewer people that are doing field sketches. Every birder 
has a, a camera around them to document birds more than they than more than they do uh, with field sketches. What are your thoughts on on being a bird artist in a in a birding world in a birding culture that seems to be obsessed with birding photography right now? I think it's good and bad. Like I personally, I have a DSLR, so I use that mm-hmm. a lot. So I it gives me lots and lots of reference pictures. Oh, I sure. find. Yeah. I do find that when I'm photographing that I tend not to look at the birds the same way even than I would do if I'm just look, trying to identify them with binoculars. I think there's a little mm-hmm. tendency to get a little bit lazy about identifying things. So you can mm-hmm. just go back and look at it in your photo, right? Right. And, uh, you know, the photography has been great for things like um, a couple, a few years ago, I was working on a book on the birds of, the Brazilian Amazon and there's some rare sub there's a rare subspecies of uh, pygmy night jar. It's really dark. I think there's only one or two specimens of it. And I'm not sure one of them, it might be either, it might be, it's either in Brazil or it's in Chicago, but anyways, it was, you know, just one specimen. It wasn't someplace mm-hmm. that I would go to. And because it's one specimen, no one's going to loan it to me. Right. So I was able to go online to one of the, websites the brazilian website and the, the i think it's wiki aves and i found like half a dozen photos of this little all dark pygmy uh night jar that i could use for reference and they were nice photos you know they weren't just mm-hmm. like little blurry photos and so that's one of the great advantages of uh digital cameras is that because so they are affordable so so many people can have them yeah that you get these photo, you know, photos of birds that, you know, 30 years ago you would never been able to get. Uh, you never would have had photos of yeah, them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that part of it's great. I, I think. I think part of it, though. I mean, for me, I think sometimes it makes it has made me sometimes a little bit lazier about going out and field sketching, you know, or doing long field sketches. And I don't. And I. And really, for for an artist, I, sometimes I think there's. I mean, everybody works differently, mm-hmm. but. I think for for a lot of people, there's just something about just going, being out and sitting and watching a bird for a long time and trying to put it down on paper. Maybe you could do the same thing from really good video, you know, in your house. Um, Because I think there's there's a couple of artists that that work that way. Yeah, that's that's certainly. I think Ian Lewington does a lot of that. Yeah, it's certainly been easier to get good video, too. It's it's been amazing. (laughs) Exactly. So. So that's also another another way of doing. I you know I would just rather not spend my time sitting inside looking at a video. You know, it'd be nicer to be outside. But sometimes sometimes you don't have that. You know, you don't have that luxury to right. spend all that time in 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 a place. You know, it seems like uh the the skill of of bird you know field sketching at the very least used to be a sort of thing that everyone could do a little bit. Right. Uh, and maybe they still can, but you know people reach for their cameras first now. Um, right. And I, I'm certainly guilty of that, too. I've done field sketches for rare birds that I've seen. Uh, but now I carry my camera everywhere and yeah, I just take a few shots and I usually can get a you know, something passable. Right. For documentary purposes. Right. So. Right. You know, it used to be that in Britain, everybody, all every birder had their little sketch mm-hmm. out and out and was drawing. And I don't think that's the, it's the same thing now. The ABA's Young Birder of the Year contest has a illustration module every year that a lot of birders, a lot of young birders who take advantage of it. Um, would you have any advice to young birders who are looking to put together a nice sketch of a bird to to submit to that contest? You've been a you've been a judge for that before in the past, haven't you? 
Yeah, I've been a judge for it for quite quite a few years, and, and yeah, that's really like that was that's my task today is to finish yeah. up uh, finish up that judging. So I I when I look at look at an entry for the young bird or illustration uh, component, I'm looking for I look for a bunch of different things. I like to see if kids have gone out and actually attempted to draw in the field, even if they're little, you know not very, you know, very good drawings, but they've gone out and really tried to, mm -hmm. to do something in the field. And it's interesting. I, there's, there's a couple of things that happen, happen with them. There's some, some of the kids, a couple of kids who are really, really talented, but they don't put in very much effort. And then they're the ones who are really, really desperately want to be, you know, a good bird artist. And they put in a ton of effort, but don't have quite as much talent. But I sort of feel that some of those, because they're so enthusiastic, they're going to keep on pursuing it and they'll get better and mm -hmm. better because it's basically all about practice. Right. Putting together a painting, it's just a tr just try not to rush rush through it. I think mo most of the paintings that I do that end up working out the best are ones that I slow down on. Every once, I mean, there's there are those pictures that kind of paint themselves, but they still tend to be ones that I'm not trying to hurry to to get through. Um, kind of take my time about it, which is always hard because you know time is another commodity that we all yeah, limiting so, factor yeah so everybody's so busy once again my, my guest has been artist sophie webb you can find her work at her website sophieweb.com we'll put the link in the show info here and her 2017 bird of the year artwork will be on the cover of the upcoming february issue of birding magazine it's a really beautiful piece uh, so keep your eye on your mailboxes for that sophie thanks so much for talking with me today you're very welcome In the last segment of this episode, I want to talk about a recent experience that I had that I think sort of ties all this together. The opportunity to see birds that you can't see around your home often eventually drives birders to seek out new places to explore. And when birders in the U.S. and Canada get to travel abroad, most of the time they head to Central or South America, which, in addition to having loads of birds and a lot of great birding opportunities, also has the advantage of being fairly easy to get to from here. One of the other advantages of traveling in the Americas that I think is sort of underappreciated is that many of the families of birds you encounter are the same as those you can find in your backyard here in North America. Whether you head to Costa Rica or Puerto Rico or all the way down to Tierra del Fuego, you're going to find warblers and you'll find hummingbirds and you'll probably find a lot of flycatchers. So no matter wherever you go, after a few days, you at least have kind of a broad idea of where to look in your field guide when you see something new, which is no small advantage when you're birding in another country. This past fall, I had the opportunity to visit Uganda, which is a small country in East Africa. It was spectacular in the way that you imagine Africa to be. Uh, the landscapes, the large mammals, and the birds, all amazing. And for a birder that has spent all but a few weeks of my life birding in what we call the ABA area, those birds are unique in a really different way than what I'm used to. The thing about being a New World birder visiting the old world is that the birds there are not only different species, which is one thing and already a bit of a learning curve, but whole different families that I had no experience with. Things like apollises and babblers and gonoleks. Um, and these are all birds and bird names in particular that I have no real ability to recognize immediately. Uh, thank goodness that I had people around me who did and could. 
But it also had birds that I did recognize, and shorebirds were definitely one of those groups. Uh, we spent some time at Queen Elizabeth National Park in the western part of the country, and one of the things that we did was take a boat ride down the Kazinga Channel, which is this natural body of water that connects two of the large lakes in the region. The ride gave us the opportunity to see lots of water birds, including wintering shorebirds from Eurasia. So I was taking the opportunity to pay close attention to ruffs and curlew sandpipers and wood sandpipers so that hopefully when I came back home, I might be a little more comfortable finding those birds in my home state. Uh, as you probably know, a lot of those birds are rare but regular vagrants to North America. And so I was, as I was panning the shoreline, I was looking at, you know, the ruff, calling them out, ruff, curly sandpiper, little stint, etc. And as I was as heading down, I saw a ruddy turnstone, uh, which was pretty unexpected. And when I called it out, I think my surprise was pretty apparent to the people that were sitting around me. I've seen ruddy turnstones many, many times, as I suspect a lot of you have too. Uh, but it was pretty weird to see a bird that I associate with the beaches of North Carolina running among the legs of African buffalo and doing its little turnstone thing next to loafing hippopotamuses. It turns out that ruddy turnstone is a pretty good bird for Uganda too, so our local guides were actually excited about it, which was really neat. I ended up that trip with something around 450 species, uh, of which all but a few dozen were new for me. It's, it's the thing about going to a new continent for the first time. Everything is new. And there was even a small number of species that I saw on this trip that I can say that I've seen in my home state too, fewer than 10 out of those 450 by my count. But one of them, and easily the most exciting find of all those new birds, was ruddy turnstone. Ruddy turnstone is one of those birds that is, is definitely hard to miss, and I'm sure that a lot of you out there have an experience with ruddy turnstones or some thoughts about ruddy turnstone that you might be willing to share with us. So I hope that you will find us on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, you can also email me at podcast at aba.org and share your ruddy turnstone stories with us. Uh, I would love to be able to collect a, a number of them and read them on a future episode of this podcast, with your permission, of course. I know for some birders, ruddy turnstone has been a has been a spark bird. I know for others, it's been sort of a realization that shorebirds aren't really all that bad and, and are actually kind of fun. Or, or like me, it's a surprising addition to a trip when you absolutely did not expect to see one. Uh, so please send those stories on. I would love to see them. Thanks for listening. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization, so if you are interested in joining the 15,000 birders in North America and beyond who are members of the ABA, please check us out at www.aba.org join. President of the ABA and executive producer of this podcast is Jeffrey Gordon. Technical production is by John Lowry with help from Greg Neese and David Hartley. John's band, The Hangabouts, also did all the music. You can find us on social media on Facebook and Twitter. On the latter, we are at ABA, not to be confused with the American Bar Association or the American Booksellers Association. You can also reach me if you have questions or comments about the show at podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick, and we'll see you next time.